right. When you look at a video like that, or you just think about, you read some of the news stories that are out there, and we all kind of look back and remember um, where we were on that day. Uh, a lot of us remember very clearly where we were on that day. Um, it's easy to look at that and just think the world is completely out of control. Does anybody ever think that? How do you navigate a world like this when things like that can happen? And then sometimes um, people will take it even further and go, how could a God who says that he loves us allow things like that to happen? You know, I'm always reminded, and it's a scripture that so many of us know, and it's almost become a little bit cliche when we say what the enemy intended for evil. God will use for the good of those who call upon his name. It's almost something that we just say, but do we really think about it very much? That is obviously something that the enemy intended for evil. The enemy intended that as an attack. And I don't mean a a nation, a tribe, a tongue, an individual person. I mean the enemy uses things like that. And it seems like the world is out of control But that brings me all the way back just strictly to the Word of God, where it says what the enemy intended for evil, he will use for the good of those who call upon his name. That's us. And so when we see something like that, we have to say, how can that possibly be something that the Lord uses for good? Well, the video itself kind of alluded to it. We came together. Anybody around during that time here just remember how all of a sudden, politics got set aside for a little bit. Different denominations got set aside. Our differences got set aside, even just for a brief time. Remember that? That was a terrible thing that happened. But I do remember well how people just, like, let's set aside the petty arguments. Let's set aside all the things that we constantly poke at each other at all day long, and let's just come together. I, there's something about that moment. There's something about tragedy. There's something about horrible things that happen to you that cause us to then refocus on what's really important. And it's a shame that it takes that. But I think sometimes that's one of those examples of what the enemy intended for evil. The problem is, is that we let that feeling fade. We let memories like that fade away to where they're just not a thing anymore. And we don't pay attention to them. We don't live our lives intentionally. Most of us, me included, it's enough for me just to focus on what's right in front of me, what I'm about to step in or what I just stepped in. That's kind of how my life works a lot of times. But we need to be more intentional about that. And so some people ask, like, well, why, you know, why do we study so much Old Testament Scripture? Why do we study so much Scripture at all? The gospel of Jesus. Um, why do we spend so much time studying that? Isn't it just enough to know Jesus died for you and you should do what he says? Okay, you can all go home now. It's more than that. We have prophecy, thousands of years of prophecy, an ongoing prophecy that that through his Holy Spirit, he is delivering to individuals among us and and ourselves. We can seek those words from the Lord every single day, but we focus a lot on thousand-year-old prophecy. 
2,000, 3,000. We focus on that because what does it tell us? What does prophecy tell us? It tells us that God is sovereign and that God is in control. And then when we see things like this happening, we go, this has been promised. The things that we're seeing now have been foretold by the prophets, and God gave it to the prophets so that we can hear it. And number one, we can be vigilant. We can watch for it. But then the other side of that coin is that we can know, okay, this is terrible and things are happening and I don't like the way things are happening right now, but God knew all along it was going to go like this. And so nothing surprises him. And then we're told that everything he uses for our good. So when we look at a world that seems completely out of control and completely chaotic all the time and evil is creeping in, we look at that, we can rest on the promises of God that say, I knew this was going to happen. Trust me. Trust in me. Sometimes that's easier said than done, but that's why we study the word. That's why we study the word, so that we can look back and say, look, centuries ago, generations ago, thousands of years ago, people were dealing with the same things we're dealing with right now. And here's how they either managed to hold on to that hope that they have in the Lord, or here's how they failed a little bit. And maybe that helps us see what we can do and what we can adjust in our lives to hold firm onto his promises. That's why we teach. So I'm going to get into the message right now. I just wanted to think about that because there are so many things that just seem outrageous in the world today. Talking about things that you see every single day that five years ago, two years ago in some cases, certainly a generation ago, they would have considered absolutely outrageous. There's no way that that would ever happen. How many of us in this room here and out there online, welcome you guys, have found themselves saying in the last couple years, oh, that would never happen. And then you look at today and go, it's happening today. But none of that's a surprise to God, and I take comfort in that. So let's get into the Word. Let's get into the Word. We're in Mark. We're in Mark chapter 13. Jesus, the servant Messiah, is the series. We're still in it. (coughs) Excuse me. We are entering... um, kind of the culmination of Mark. It's all about Jesus and his ministry and his servanthood and the things that he did, the miracles he accomplished through the Holy Spirit. Um, But we're now getting ready to enter into what we would call Passion Week. Starts with the betrayal and it goes all the way up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. So we're kind of We're nearing that part, and next week we actually start into that. But right now we're still in this part where Jesus is still teaching. And it's important to know that this is, and Jesus knows, this is the last solid, uninterrupted, if you will, teaching that I'm going to have with you guys. So I want to make sure you carry some things away. And so what this is called, and Pastor Gabe started it last week, um, he's talking to some disciples. Not all the disciples, very small group of disciples, and he's talking to them on the Mount of Olives, and it's what's called the Olivet Discourse. So throw that out to your friends at parties if you want to seem Bible smart. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It just means it's a teaching that he did on the Mount of Olives. And again, he did it to a very specific group. A couple of things just to review from last week when Pastor Gabe was teaching. 
Mark 13, verse 14, Jesus says, Now when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those of you who are following along with your, in your Bibles, I use the New American Standard, but almost every single translation has the, where it says, let the reader understand. It's interjected in there. Now, some of them have it in a parenthesis, like it's, like it's maybe Mark or one of the scribes putting it in there. Some of them attribute those words to Jesus. We don't know for sure if it's Jesus saying that or if it's one of the scribes or, or it's Mark himself saying that. But here's the question. By reader, let the reader understand. Is it meant, let's say it was Jesus saying that, and I believe it could be. Um, was it meant for those who had read and understood Daniel's prophecy of hundreds of years earlier, or is it for us today? Think about that. Or, here's the question again, could it be both? Could it be it was meant for them who were about to go through some stuff, or is it for us much later, still going through some stuff? That's the debated question, and that's when, when you talk about Mark 13, it's called dual fulfillment prophecy, and it's debated whether it is or whether it isn't, whether it's just a short-term thing that Jesus is teaching, look, this is about to happen to you, and by you, I mean them 2,000 years ago, or it could also be a warning for us. So that's debated, and I think, really, it is both. Mark 13, 19 we have it up here. For those days will be such a time of tribulation as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will again. This is so ripe with those little phrases and things that people like to debate. Like, does this mean in those days? Like, what's those days? It could be then, or it could be now, or it could be both. Now, that phrase, since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will again, sometimes people get in there and they parse that apart, like saying, okay, it will never happen again, so he's saying it only happened once. You need to do a little bit of study on it and know that that is actually a very common, or was at the time especially, a very common Hebrew turn of phrase. They would say that to mean essentially what it meant was things are bad and they're only going to get worse. That's kind of what that meant. It wasn't really a time-sensitive thing. It just meant, look, things are bad and it's going to get worse. And if we look back in history, now, if you're, if you're a Jew and you're looking back at the history of the Jewish people, you would see the events that happened 40 years after Jesus taught this, so about 70 A.D., when Jerusalem was sacked. Jerusalem was attacked. Uh, the temple was burnt. The temple was, was reduced to rubble. There were a, a series of emperors who were using bodies as human torches, uh, mass executions. It was horrible what was going on in those times. And those times then became forever known, especially to the Hebrew people, as the tribulation. That's what they called it. That's what they essentially know it as. And really, to this day, 
as bad as many things that we've seen happen in history, to this day, nothing really is documented to be so violent and so terrible as those times that they went through back in 70 AD. In fact, uh, it was Emperor Titus who really had the biggest hand in all that. But a Roman historian, Josephus, he says this, and this is he's speaking right at the time or very shortly after. And he says, I do not think that any state ever su- suffered such things or any nation within the memory of man. Now, that was his memory back in 70 AD. But remember some of the greatest hits of the Romans? They had some big conquer, uh, uh, conquests that they did. They were not known for being friendly. And Josephus is saying, look, all these things that have happened until now, there is nothing that was as bad as what they went through then. So ultimately, when we get to the end of what Pastor Gabe taught last week, the message really, you can parse out the the short-term, near-term, all that sort of thing, but really when it comes down to it, it boils down to just this, be on guard and do not be deceived. That's really what it boils down to. There's going to be false teachers starting all the way back then. There's going to be people claiming to be the Messiah, which happened all the way back then. Again, things that were documented in the time shortly after Jesus, people claiming to be the Messiah. But that was, that was the takeaway, if you will, from that first half. Now, this week, we're going to get into the second half. Mark 13, 24 to 37 is what we're going to be focusing on. So if you have your Bibles... Focus in on that. There's parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke. Matthew 24, Luke 21. If you want to read those later, you can do that. We're obviously focused on Mark. It is important to know, though, that in the scheme of things, if you're looking at a timeline and you compare the different Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel, he records Jesus teaching a few more parables in there, whereas Mark just gets right to it. Um, I love Mark for that. He's just like, we're not going to go into detail. We're just going to say, this happened, and then move on. But in Matthew's, Jesus teaches these parables before it kind of merges again with Mark. He teaches the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and the goats. Now, if you think about those different parables, what do they really have in common? Anybody know what those three parables just kind of have in common? No, you didn't come here expecting to be quizzed, right? That's Wednesday night. What it really means is be prepared. Be prepared with what you have been given, with the gifts that you have been given, with the blessings that you have been given. It's not enough to just sit back, hunker down, and wait for things to pass over. You are supposed to. You are called by God. You are, it's reinforced by Jesus in these parables here. Make the most of the gifts that you have been given because time is short and there will be a judgment. There will be an answering for how you have used what you have been given. So again, this is the last section before, before Jesus uh, enters into what we would call Passion Week. But Mark or or Matthew, that is, I'm sorry, devotes the end of chapter 25 to the coming judgment. He talks a little bit more about that. But Mark goes into a parable of the fig tree. 
It's the only parable that Mark includes in this part. The parable of the fig tree. Now, this poor fig tree, and fig trees in general, get used for all kinds of illustrations. But it's important to note that, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this parable, and they talk about it, and they teach it, and they document it in almost exactly the same way. So whenever you see that, that should be a flag to you like, this is important. This is extremely important. It's not just uh, color as far as what was going on. This is a core teaching. So we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. Hang on to that. But the last thing that Jesus said about what what we would call that short-term prophecy, warning the disciples that, look, very shortly in your lifetime, there's going to be some things going down, and you need to watch out for them. Go back and listen to Gabe's message last week if you want to hear more about that. But the last thing he says, Jesus' words, Mark 13, 23, he says, But beware, I have told you everything in advance. He's saying, be, be aware, I've told it to you. Now think about you're a disciple back in that time. Could you have, now think about this, we, we, I tend to, and I think a lot of us do, tend to put the disciples up on a pedestal, right? You walked with Jesus, you ate with Jesus, you followed him, he chose you specifically. You must be, you must be so much holier and smarter and everything than I am. But think about it, they were just men. They were just human beings that Jesus chose because he saw something in them, but It wasn't always because he saw their ability to see things in the future that weren't necessarily knowable. They didn't have the Holy Spirit in them yet. So when you have things like Jesus teaches, and he's talking to them, and he says, hey, you know, before before the week is out, I'm going to be arrested and betrayed and crucified. Their response is, is, yeah, 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 okay, but hold, hold that thought for a second. Which one of us is better? So every time you want to put them up on a pedestal and think they knew things far beyond what we could know, they were just people. And they're focused on their own lives and the things, and and they're trying. But they couldn't grasp everything Jesus was teaching them. So when he's teaching them about the tribulations and the things that are coming, some of it, like what Gabe taught last week, was meant for them. Beware, you and your families, beware, this is coming, and this will come in your lifetime, so be ready. He gives them signs to look for. When you see this, when you see that, I want you to run for the hills. He tells them that. Now, though, there's this shift, and it's kind of a subtle shift, and I, I don't know for sure, I wasn't there, but I don't think that the disciples could possibly have really picked up on the subtle shift here. Because in Mark 13, verses 24, 25, it starts out with the word, but. That tells you that there's, okay, everything I just told you, but. And it's something, it's a different thought. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. What does that mean? It tells me right off the bat, without even digging too far, after that tribulation, meaning the one that was coming to them shortly, there will be another tribulation. And Jesus is quoting the prophets. This, again, is one reason why I love looking at Old Testament Scripture. 
Again, to us, it's Old Testament. To them at the time, it was just the Scripture. That's what they had. But he's quoting the prophets, Jesus is. He's quoting Ezekiel, Ezekiel 32, 7, 600 years before Jesus is teaching this. And it was actually during, while um, Judea was in the Babylonian exile. He sa- and Ezekiel 32, 7 says, And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. The next part of it was Isaiah, Isaiah 13, 10. 700 years earlier. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. And then Joel. Joel chapter 2, verses 30, 32. 800 years before Jesus taught this. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. Blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 800 years before Jesus said what he said there, that's 2,800 years ago for us. You think prophecy is there for us to be able to to put our hopes into, to see that God's promises These promises have not happened yet, and they sound horrible. I don't want to be there when the moon darkens and the sun doesn't give its light and the stars fall. But when I see it happening, depending on whether you're pre-tribulation or post or mid-tribulation, we can talk about this later, but depending on where where you stand, when you see those things happening, it will be terrible, yes, but we can say, 2,800 years ago, the prophets warned us that this was going to happen. God is sovereign. God is in control. And God's promise is that he will use it for my good. I don't know how, and I don't have to know how. But I do have to trust in him. But think about what the prophets are saying. Again, think that you're, that you're one of those early disciples, and you're hearing that. What are they saying? They're basically saying that the framework of the world as you know it is going to be turned upside down. It's going to be turned inside out, upside down, shaken. Nothing can be taken for granted. So be careful where you put your hopes, for one. But think about this. Even in the times of the greatest disasters, what do we always say? What's a little cliche phrase that we always say? The sun will come up tomorrow. We always see that, and that's a way to like comfort ourselves, like, look, things might be crazy, and I don't know why this is happening, and it's terrible, but at least the sun will come up tomorrow, and it's another day, and it's another opportunity. But they're saying that's not going to happen in those days. That's, that's mind-boggling to me. In those days, the sun will be darkened. Listen to this, that word, darkened. If you're new here, I like to give a little Greek and Hebrew lessons every now and then when it's appropriate and when it makes a difference. That phrase, the sun will be darkened, to us it just means, okay, you know, cloud or it's an eclipse or something goes in front. That word had more meaning to the Greeks who wrote it. In the Greek, that, word, that phrase, will be darkened, is actually just one word. In the Greek, it's, it's skotizo, skotizo. And the definition of that is to obscure God's light. Specifically, 
the visible manifestation of his presence. That's what that word implies. That's what it means. And it's not a word found, that word is found in Scripture, of course, but there's another word that you might be thinking of or you might have heard. It's not found in Scripture, but it's commonly called the Shekinah glory of God. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? It's the visible manifestation of God's presence. Now, in the time of Exodus, what did that look like? Well, no, here's a picture that I have. That's what the visible manifestation of God's presence looked like. And there are other examples when Moses was on the mountain and the burning bush was there and different things like that. There's other examples. But that is the visible manifestation of God's presence. Now today, it might look something just a little bit more like this. It might just look like that. It's the manifestation of God's power and his glory and his presence. And when I look up and I see a beautiful sunset, first of all, I thank the Lord because it's just gorgeous. But then I think that is the manifestation of God's presence to me. Because in the end days when God's presence has been removed, the sun will be darkened and we won't have that. Every time I see that, I'm thankful that God's presence is still here. Now, in those, you can take that down. In those, in those times, when God's presence is removed, it's going to be a combination of joy and mourning. We're going to see that. Scripture promises us that it's both. And when the light returns, it'll be in the glory and in the person of Jesus Christ. Mark 13, 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. There's actually two scriptures that are being uh, quoted there. First of all, it's Daniel 7.13. He's quoting that directly. But also then later, John, when John's writing his gospel, the Revelation given to him, Revelation 1.7, he's quoting this back. And it says this, Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. That's the revelation given to John. Hadn't happened yet. But think about this. What's the difference between the disciples that heard Jesus teaching that and then those, including us, who would later read John's revelation? What's the main difference? One of the main differences is the Holy Spirit that we have. So when we read scriptures like that and we read the revelation of John, to them back then when they first read it, they may have gone, I don't know about that. That's weird or I don't understand it. How many when you don't understand something, you just like, okay, moving on. Let's just skip on until I get to something I understand. There may have been a lot of that going on there, but we have the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And that not only empowers you with gifts to be used in the body of Christ, but it also enlightens Scripture to you. It opens your eyes. It lets you see things and understand things. The problem is we have to seek that understanding. We can't just assume, okay, I heard it, so I understand it. You have to look at it. You have to study it. You have to seek that understanding. But then we're promised that we will get it if we seek it. Mark 13, 27. And then, <coughs> excuse me, continuation of that thought. 
And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the end of the earth to the end of heaven. Again, this is one of those debates, pre-tribulation, rapture, post-tribulation, rapture, mid-tribulation, rapture. Um, Wherever you come down on that, uh, I tend to come down on the pre-tribulation rapture side. Um, But the elect in this case means the 144,000 from the 12 tribes. That's who he's talking about here. Here's my question. Has that happened yet? Has anybody seen a sudden disappearance of 144,000? So that hasn't happened yet. And so when he's talking about this day, he's talking about things that have already happened to us now, but to them, they were in the very, very short term coming up. But then also things that have not happened yet. So this is definitely what you call a dual fulfillment scripture. You have the first half, which was a very short term, 40 years later, and then the second half, which is yet to happen. So now that I tease the parable of the pig tree, the, the pig tree. There's no such thing as a pig tree. I don't, don't want to hear that. Maybe there is. I don't know if there is. But it's a fig. Let me be careful. A fig tree. Mark 13, 28. Now. Learn the parable from the fig tree. Now, remember what he was just saying. He was just saying, sending elect, uh, sending his angels and gathering together the elect. And then he immediately goes into this. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and sprouts its leaves, you know that summer is near. Verse 29, so you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. So what's he saying? It's not that difficult, really. He's saying, watch for signs and be ready. So it's a different parable of the fig fig tree (laughs) than we saw before. Remember the last parable of the fig tree where the fig tree had the promise of fruit. It looked like it was going to bear fruit, but it wasn't. And so he actually cursed that fig tree because of all the promise with none of the follow-through. This is different. This, he's saying, look, when you see things getting ready, it's not about the fig tree. When you look at a fig tree and you see it becoming green, you see the shoots becoming tender, you see the, the buds starting to come out, you know that it's almost time for it to bear fruit. And so what he's saying here is watch. Watch for the signs. The signs he's giving them right now. Watch for these signs and be ready. Now again, in the short term, that was fulfilled when the Romans sacked Jerusalem. But here's another thing that causes people to trip up. I have had people say, I can't trust the Bible. Therefore, I don't want to be a a Christian. And this is what they fall back on. It's this statement right here. Mark 13, 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, if we just read that as what we consider, what do you, when you say this generation, what do you think? You, your children, and all your living family members. That's a generation, right? That's the way we look at generation. And so they look at that and go, okay, Jesus taught that to them, and it didn't happen in their lifetime. Their generation passed away. Therefore, Jesus was wrong. If he's wrong about this, what else is he wrong about? Maybe I can't trust him after all. 
We need to look very closely at things like that that don't seem to make sense. And when you look at this, first of all, either way you take it, this generation will not pass away. It's true. In the short term, it was fulfilled when, when Emperor Titus attacked Jerusalem. And in the long term, it has yet to be fulfilled. We will see it fulfilled. But if we look closer just at that word generation, again, it has a meaning to us, but let's look at what they meant there. The word generation in the Greek is genea. Very straightforward word. But it means it can mean race, like an entire race. It can mean your family, of course, your actual generation. But get this, it's one of those words, it's an interesting word, and Hebrew does this all the time. Greek, not as often, but when you use that word generation and you use it in conjunction with another modifier word, what it really does is it comes to mean an infinity of time. So when he says that, he's not saying just you in this room, you and your families. He's not saying the four. He's saying a genera- uh, an infinity of time will not pass away before these things happen. Now, again, very commonly debated, and I just want to really quick drive by, talk about it. Most scholars have one of three basic views of that word generation. First, this generation could just be the four who are there talking to Jesus. Remember, it's, it's uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew who are there specifically hearing him, and it could mean them and their fellow disciples. Maybe that's what he means by generation. The other view, it could mean those who were generated from a common ancestor. Now, in this case, it would have to be Adam that he's talking about. And and Adam then would include everyone on earth, right? I don't think he's talking about that either. Some take it to mean that the church that originated from those four that Jesus was talking to, the church that came from them as a generation... The other one, the the third basic point, this generation could mean either those who are or will be alive to witness the things he's talking about here. The things he talks about in Matthew 24, the things he's talking about here in Mark and in Luke. And those who believe that these prophecies are entirely symbolic, the prophecies about the end times, would almost always agree with option one. The problem with that view, though, is, is even if you don't look at the prophecies literally, there are many that have not been fulfilled yet. Many, many. So it just it, it makes Scripture in general and Jesus' words ripe with error, especially John's revelation if you look at that. Now, option two is a little bit better. Generation meaning descendants, the apostles generated the church and their following Christian uh, uh, followers that came after them. It could be that. I think option three, though, is the most reasonable, and I'll, I'll tell you why here. The generation, again, is those people who will be or were an eyewitness to the things that Jesus is talking about. From all the events of Mark 13, from the beginning of the actual birth pangs, the very first hints of end times prophecy being fulfilled, all the way to Jesus' return in glory. And I say that because think about these things. The destruction of the temple, 
All these things are foretold. The destruction of the temple, it happened. Wars and rumors of wars. Ongoing. Has there never been a time when, uh, ever been a time when there wasn't that? Nations and kingdoms rising up against one another. Earthquakes, famines, persecution, the martyring of believers. The desecration of the temple, which happened then, but have you been to Israel in the recent history? There's a mosque where the temple used to be. That's desecrating that holy site. But then this last one, the sun will be dark and the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven and the powers in heaven being shaken. Has that happened yet? And then finally, the very final promise, the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. That hasn't happened yet. But until then, until then, we have this promise. Not only all those scriptures, all of that prophecy that we're looking at, but we have this promise that Jesus gives us in Mark. Mark 13, 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. His words are promises. His words are promises written to you. And he's saying everything else may fall, everything else may be shaken, but you can stand on my word. The study of that whole um, discipline of looking at end times, looking at all those things, is, anybody know what it's called? Eschatology. It's called eschatology, and it's a whole discipline. And, and I, get, I like it too but it can't be our entire focus. It's something to know. And in a lot of ways, it's a whole theological discipline devoted to knowing something that's unknowable, to figuring out something that can't be figured out. Think about this. Mark 13, 32, and 33. But about that day or hour, Jesus talking about when the heavens and earth pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So he leaves us with this. Watch out, stay alert, for you do not know when the appointed time is. See, it's one thing to study. I like to study. I like to study it. I like to look at it. I like to know it. But I'm not going to get so wrapped up into it that I miss what the gospel message is of Christ. And it's easy to do, especially if you're one of those that just likes to figure out things. I, I know I, I like that. But it's not our responsibility as followers of Christ to know when the king is returning, only to be ready for his return. That's our job. And what does it look like to be ready? Mark 13, 34, 36. It's like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge... Are you seeing the parallels here? Leaving his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay alert. Therefore, stay alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, so that he does not come suddenly and find you asleep. Are any of us asleep? Let me ask you this question. Out there online, you too, think about this. Are there things that you have allowed to creep into your life that are not something that we should let into our lives? Something that maybe borders on idolatry? Maybe it's something that's outright 
sinful behavior, maybe it's so subtle that we don't even see it. Can anybody here think of anything? And you don't have to raise your hand. I'm not going to call you out. Think of things that maybe you've allowed to creep into your life and you've just said, eh, it doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't hurt anything. It's not, what difference does it make? When it says, so that he does not come and suddenly come suddenly and find you asleep, that's what that means. That means when Jesus returns on the clouds in his glory, what is he going to find you involved in in your life that shouldn't be there? If he walks through your spiritual house, what's he going to point out and say, why is that there? Okay, anybody here have friends over to your house and right before the friends come over, what do you do? You go through the house like, what do I need to put away? Some of it's cleaning, but some of us, let's be honest, is like, I don't necessarily want to answer for that. So I'm going to put that over here. I'm going to swap out my CD collection from ACDC to uh, it's all, yeah, it's all Christian music. We all do that to a certain extent. But it's more sinister than that when it really comes to what we allow in our hearts. There are things we let in there that shouldn't be in there. And the last words that Mark records, Jesus saying, Mark 13, 37, what I say, I say to you all, stay alert. Stay alert. Be watchful. Stay alert. And it can be, it can be enlightening, interesting, and even fun to study and debate the scriptures, uh, especially those that pertain to the end of days. But our, our job as Christians, is not trying to figure it out. The point of this verse is not figuring it out. He's not telling you all these things so you can say, okay, get out a whiteboard. Let's see, this happens, this happens, this happens. Okay, because what happens as human beings, anybody, if you said, I have a good friend who's coming over a week from Tuesday to my house, would start cleaning your house today. You wait until a week from Tuesday. And that's when you do it. I think in God's mercy, he doesn't give us the exact date. We're told just the opposite. We will never know the date. The point is, once the end times, things really begin in earnest, it will happen quickly. It will happen quickly, and we need to be ready. Read Daniel and Revelation if you want more on the signs to look for. But in a very short time frame, a seven-year time frame, think about this. There's going to be resurrection of the dead, rapture of believers in Christ, a new world leader come to power, um, a, broker of, of, a brokerage of peace in Israel, and then very quickly breaking that. Um, there's going to be a series of judgments, the outpouring of God's wrath, um, trumpet judgments, scroll judgments. There's all kinds of things and more tribulation than we can possibly wrap our minds around. But it's not something to be fearful of. It sounds like it, right? But we fall back on God's promise that all of those things he's going to use for our good. It's something to be aware of. It's something to expect. And it's something to be ready for. Paul's letter to Titus, not Emperor Titus, different Titus. What an unfortunate name to have to share with an emperor. But Titus, 
uh, chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, Paul says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself his people for his own possession, eager for good deeds." That was Paul writing that to Titus. So, uh, so let's recap really quick here. So Pastor Gabe's ultimate message was be on guard, do not be deceived. The message from today, if we had to boil it down to a sentence, it was this, stay alert. Do not be deceived, stay alert. So practical application time, right? Get ready. Those of you who are fading out, focus in here. How do we live our lives? And be alert and be on guard against deception. How do we do that in this day and age? We live in a world where we've been warned deception will creep into our lives. You ever see those movies with those deep cover spies? They're in, you know, they live in your society for 20 years before they finally rear up. We're lulled into being complacent and idolatry attacks on the very order of things that God created, um, and even Satan worship has become commonplace. You think I'm making that up? Satan worship is becoming commonplace. I see Facebook posts about the Satanic temple saying, hey, come join us. We have a get-together and a potluck. I see that all the time. I was going to show you a clip, something that popped up. Some of you may be aware, some of you may not. It popped up uh, just a couple days ago. There's a new animated series. These animated series are getting out of control. This one, Disney Studios produced it. Disney. They produced it. It's being aired on Hulu. And it's, instead of giving it actual airtime with a clip, I'm just going to tell you about it. I'm going to read you a press release, their press release, what they say about this new little show they're putting out called Little Demon. It's Disney. It's called Little Demon. Here's their press release. 13 years after being impregnated by Satan, a reluctant mother, Laura, and her antichrist daughter, Chrissy, attempt to live an ordinary life in Delaware, but are constantly forwarded by monstrous forces, are constantly forwarded by monstrous forces, including Satan, who yearns for custody of his daughter's soul. And just in case you think, okay, maybe, maybe they're trying to say it's a, it's a struggle, it's a battle. Here are two of the stars, two of the main stars, a quote that they gave in an interview about how they approach their character and how this works. One, um, star's name is Aubrey Plaza. She's been in a few different things, and she plays one of the main stars, and it's this. She goes, I think it's great that we're normalizing paganism. And another one, the, the girl that plays the 13-year-old daughter, Chrissy, her name's Lucy DeVito, Danny DeVito's actual uh, daughter, and Danny DeVito's in it too. She says, being a 13-year-old girl, you can be demon-like at times. And there's so many more, far more heinous things than that. Bless you. You can look, look up the trailer if you want to just watch the trailer. The point is, 
things like that are creeping into our lives. They're becoming more and more normal. Look, it's the lovable little antichrist struggling with the same things that my daughter struggles with. The Apostle Paul wrote this. I'm going to read this to you. It's kind of long. Listen, it's, it's 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 10. We're almost there. Stay with me. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them. Even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us, don't be fooled by what they say, for that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back, for he can only be revealed when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. Verse 9, this man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. Second Thessalonians 2, read that. Look, I'm not here to vilify any particular studio or actor, tell you how to respond. You have the Holy Spirit to tell you how to respond. The thing is, do we spend any time seeking the Holy Spirit? Try this. When you go home today, or you could do it now during prayer time, seek the Holy Spirit in earnest, honestly, that means, and say, what have I allowed to creep into my life that doesn't belong there? What have I allowed to become normal in my life? What have I accepted in my life and in my family's life that if Jesus came through my house today, I'd be scurrying to hide that somewhere? What have I allowed? That's between you and the Holy Spirit. It's my job to point out what Scripture says, and it says, stay alert. The last thing Jesus says from verse 37, stay alert. Let's pray. Father God, lead us. Lead us into your path, your path of light, your path of righteousness. When there is so much darkness around us, there is so much to distract us, to knock us off of that path. There are so many things that are tempting to lead us away from your path. Lord, help us to stay on that path. Speak to us. Show us now, those of us who are honest enough and bold enough to seek the answer to this, Lord, reveal to us what things are we allowing into our lives? What things have we let into our family's life that don't belong there? Things that are evil, things that are lies that we have allowed thinking it doesn't hurt anything. Lord, show us those things and then help us in a loving way, not with a bludgeon or not with a baseball bat, but help us in a loving way to restore those people to truth, those things in our lives, to remove them without hurting our witness for you. 
Lord, help us to do everything we do in love. Help us to say what we say in love and help us to stand firm on your truth. In a world that's upside down, no matter how bad things get, let us find peace and comfort in your truth because you have always been there. Nothing ever surprises you. Help us to trust in you. Father, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're gonna take we're gonna take communion together right now. We'll have two stations. Gabe and I will be over here. Uh, Jim and Sandy will be over on this side. And then we have a third, which is the station next to the window. The one next to the window is juice. Uh, and you can serve yourself there if you'd like. Up front here we'll have wine and bread and gluten-free crackers if you want. You just come up and you just dip it in and take it like that. But if we, if we follow what Jesus says, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Every time we gather together, we are supposed to take communion and celebrate what he did. It's not just remembering, oh yeah, he did that thing. Every time we do this, every time we take communion, I want you to look at the sum total of Jesus' teachings in all of scripture and say, yes, I agree with that. I believe in that. And I will stand with that. And that's how I'll live my life to the best of my abilities. Nobody's perfect. But if we're not making an effort to live by his teachings, then celebrating what he did for us on the cross is pointless. By his death, he washed us clean, gave us a clean slate. By his death, we received the Holy Spirit so that we can see these things that maybe the apostles in a lot of times couldn't. We have that. That's what we celebrate when we take communion together. So as Tom plays on, let's worship. Feel free to move around. Pray for one another. If somebody needs prayer for healing, somebody needs prayer for fear or to help identify what's in their lives that maybe shouldn't, look for somebody in the back. They'll have a a prayer lanyard on. And they can pray with you or better yet, let's pray for one another. But let's move about and let's take communion. Just worship what God is doing in our midst, right? Amen. Thank you, guys.